Hello and welcome to this week's BWB Extra, where we continue our conversation with Ian Woodley, founder at Finance Kitchen. We talk all things restaurants, dark kitchens, delivery, and that time Ian saved the Cinnamon Club from never opening. Welcome to The Kitchen Culture. Do you do, I presumably you do things like dark kitchens and stuff like that as well, or not? Um, I presume everybody knows what a dark kitchen is, but yes. No, what's yeah. a dark kitchen? A, a dark kitchen is... You uh, cook in the dark. It, <laughs> Piss off. There is that restaurant in the dark, uh, Dawn Noir or something. Anyway. That's right, never been there. But um, no, a dark kitchen is where uh, it's a kitchen not in a usual high street location. They're quite often stuck in a, under a railway out somewhere, and they generally tend to focus on delivery foods. So there'll be a stream of right. m- mopeds flying in and out delivering And it may food well be them. that they have sort of two or three or more different kind of brands. Yep. So you might have an Indian takeaway, as it were, and a Chinese and a something else. We've and had, we've had people, them. people come to us who claim to have hundreds of brands. that They're running out of one kitchen. I've got a client that does wow. that. Wow. I yeah. mean, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It's a sort of you—you you wouldn't get not to it. me personally, no. Right, but, right, uh, yeah. But in terms, in terms of, um, uh, I, I guess, efficiency, it makes sense. But I, I'm sure the food suffers somewhere along the way. But also, often, kind of the bigger restaurant chains and things like that will have a dark kitchen where the food is generally prepared before it's taken to a restaurant, so somewhere like Pret or whatever. Yeah, I was about to say, the big chains yeah. must have started this, really, shouldn't they? You yeah. Know, so. we, we call them uh, central production units, where the actual... CPUs. C- CPUs, good, good, yeah. So so, so <laughs> where, where the... Say you were in an expensive place like Oxford Street, and you had a tiny little place, which which you probably couldn't cook any food, you'd have a, a railway arch within easy reach where all the work could be done, and you just bring it to the restaurant or... or if, grab-and-go place, what it happens to be, where it's then assembled. So uh, it plays part of that process. And you can also, it's a very efficient way of doing it because you can run five, ten restaurants off of one central production unit. And there are, I can never remember, but there's sort of planning rules and stuff which mean you can get, I can't remember what they are, A1 or A3 or whatever, where you can't cook on the premises. Yes, correct, yeah. You can also get D7 where nobody would possibly live or eat or do anything. But I always say it's terribly unfair for the chefs. You know, the the people upstairs, they're getting the tips and everything. And then the people in this basement, I mean, often it's changed a bit, but London kitchens were traditionally in the basements. And a lot of chefs I've known, most of them Italian and things, would say, you have no idea about the rats. You know, you would say, you run a kitchen in these London basements. He says it was was horrific. But they're endemic. You can't, I used to work at Riverside Studios when I was at law school. I was a sous chef in the evenings in Riverside Studios and the mice the most you could hope for is that the mice didn't get on the countertops well, because they're just endemic because could... you're down by the river uh, yeah. you can't get rid of them you just can't and there was also, a uh, sharp exhale of breath here and I was that well, no, of, no, fed so, up uh, with the problem no I know I'm just <laughs> <laughs> no I was just I was just there I make a serious point I think when the when the early stats came out from Covid um, the professions that were Mm. most likely to die. Chefs were in the top three. Was and, one really? of, and one of the reasons was because they're continually working in an environment where you've got like, you a know... A poorly ventilated insane. environment. Yeah, it is. I yeah. live with a chef training to be a chef and apart from learning that French food basically considered, consisted of butter <laughs> as each day he came That's home all. and showed me the I mean, recipe. That sounds and he was fun. like, oh, what are we learning today? You know, and it'd yeah. be like, well, we take a, a kilo of butter and a couple of herbs. Have, you, it, have yeah. you seen the price of butter today? Is it crazy? Yeah, somebody was posting a picture Nine and I quid. wasn't sure whether yeah. it was a joke or not. With, no. with security seals on <laughs> On the butter, like it's gold. My problem was always, when I was at law school, it worked really well for me because I was at law school all day and then I'd go to the restaurant in the evening, cook all evening. And the whole reason was to... 
to make <laughs> enough money to get through law school. Yeah. But because it was a bar and restaurant. You spent um, it in the bar. I spent it in the fucking <laughs> bar every night. And then we'd have lock-ins pretty much every night. And I'd come off shift at like Smart. 10 o'clock and there'd be a really cold pint of London Pride with the, the stuff dripping yeah. down the outside. Waiting for me on the bar. Yes, from the barman. Yeah, yeah. And then we'd have a lock-in and then I'd spend all my money Circular on the taxi economy. home. Yeah. <laughs> can, I, can I say that? Probably the best years of your life. I mean, it was uh, fun. I mean, you didn't, you didn't make any money, but if you no weren't having money. fun getting drunk in lock-ins at that yeah, age, then something's There's a massive uh, camaraderie around the whole thing. And it's, it's, it's something like, you mentioned the there is a hierarchy. It's like being in the army. Mm. And uh, as I say, you, you also get that kind of common bond to really difficult service is something that well, kind of welds people together. Isn't that from, I mean, the army and these sort of theories, they're based on when you've got to do something extremely difficult, you need sort of utter obedience and hierarchy. And you actually saw that or during COVID when, off. you know, yeah. bless the NHS because my wife's in it as a doctor, but, you know, they were trying to get sorted with this hospital. And if you have any idea about how many layers of bullshit management have been put in the NHS, it used to be run by the army and they probably did. I don't know who fucks. It's not my fucking business. But they had to get some shit done. And I wish I was in the meeting when then the NH, head of the NHS management team had a meeting with the army about what they were going to do. And I would imagine after about 10 minutes, right, shut the fuck up. <laughs> you know, yeah. This is what we're going to do. You, piss off. Right, you. You know, it would just be like, you know, that kind of approach, which it works to some extent in the kitchen. Again, it shows how difficult it is to deliver those plates, especially Michelin-starred quality food. It gets stuff mm. done. So, okay, back, to, back to the business. Finance oh, yeah, that. Yeah, um, so that. no dark kitchens. Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah we, we do. do. Oh, you yeah. do, do we do the dark, do dark kitchens. kitchens. I'm just not personally a fan. We're, fan. But, we're, but I put that What are you a side. fan of? What do you get excited about when it comes across your desk? Um, I think... I think anything that's kind of new, I think um, we did go through a stage about five years ago where things were kind of new for the being new sake. We kind of run out of genres yeah, of food. Yeah, But it's really, I, I think... I think What's one, the one that's half Japanese and half um, Mexican? Oh, we've had a few. There um, been the, yeah, fuse, fusion, but you wonder why. We've had, it's actually really nice. Yeah, we've in, had a... Uh, a it's in... We've had a Brazilian, in Brazilian Japanese one as well, I think. Yeah. Choco mate. Yeah. That's yeah, really nice. Yeah. I, but I, th I think probably one of the, the best things I think I found since working uh, in this sector is the fact that people are kind of universally positive. You know, mm. I'd spent 10 years in business rescue, saving people's sorry asses, Nasty. And they didn't want to know you afterwards, even though you'd kind of got them through a really difficult time and out the other side. Because they didn't want to think about you it. You were a bad so memory. Bad. You were yeah. a bad you know, memory. And you were like, don't want to see you ever again. You saw you them at weakness, do you? You saw them at yeah, a point of weakness. Just, it was just really not fun. And, and then moving to hospitality, it's like everybody's positive. Everybody's got a plan. Everybody's trying to do something. You know, they're an incredibly optimistic bunch. And I mean, even through the last couple of years, I hate the term pivot, but that, that whole thing about that's not working, try something else, that's not working, try, and they'll, they're eventually they'll find a way. And that's a really good um, space to be in. You know, if you've had three or four meetings like that, you come away buzzing because you, you kind of feed off their energy as well. It's um, it's a fair point. I, I have people, clients in the hospitality industry, and you make me think about them, and they are very positive people. It's almost, hmm. it's a fun thing to do, maybe, to have a restaurant. Well, it's a passion, isn't it? A lot, yeah. a lot yeah. are kind of living out of passion, and we're all a lot happier if we're doing what we actually enjoy. I mean, I think, I don't think COVID's been kind to it, because I think a lot of people have had the, their passion and the enthusiasm beaten out of them. 
Well, I mean, if, and you, a lot if of, you were a, a lot of restaurants went to the wall. Yeah, if you're oh. a conspiracy theorist, I mean, the government's policy it did everything possible to kind of kill the hospitality industry. I mean, it's funny. I've been talking, having conversations like that in the last. In couple terms, of, it's the same for the music industry in terms of oh, closing. Yeah, everything. yeah, yeah. Well, the thing, I mean, the thing is, it, it's all kind of got lumped together now. You kind of forget what was going on over a two-year period. But you know, if you're running a restaurant, you were either shut. You're either part open, hoping to get more open. You were then briefly open. Oh my god! And then you were kind of a bit. You were shut again a bit, and then you were closed again, and then it kind of happened again. And, and it's just this continuing cycle yeah. where, at no point, could you actually look into the future and say, "I actually know what's going to happen this next six months." You know, it was absolutely. And then you're miserable. allowed to open, but you can only have half the half oh, the covers. Just think back on it. And, and, and we, you know, it was crazy. I went through it with a few people, and actually, yeah. the, 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 they all well, the ones I know survived. Really, you, you needed a core team. That it was like, okay, you, me, the chef, and this other person. We're just going to be rock solid because we're not going to get any start. Yeah, and Brexit is not helping. So you know. No, I mean, as I say, there's a lot of um, there, there were people that, that went to war, but I think. What it really also found out, it was never more important in terms of who you were and where you were. We talked talked about the dark kitchen thing. There's a lot of people switch to delivery, but you actually need to be in a residential area to have delivery. If you're in the middle of the city, that was no good to you at all because nobody lives there. No. So, you know, those businesses really struggled. I had had one client that's uh, like a lunchtime sandwiches in the city business and they were really screwed. Yeah, and, and things haven't necessarily got a lot better because we've got twats now, haven't we? Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, mm. where nobody works Mondays. Twits, and... I think. And I and I hear I hear I hear there's a there's a there's a problem in the high end restaurants because um, the very rich maybe it's changing, but the you know the really wealthy they kind of buggered off a bit because we made it so hard to get in with COVID and and then this sort of added Brexit effect and stuff. So I hear there's a problem. Yeah, the Brexit one is an interesting one because I don't quite buy into that. I mean, Brexit's obviously had a massive effect on on staff. Yeah. Um, But, you know, if you see what's happening with airports in the last couple of weeks, that there are countries within the EU who seem to have the same staff issues. And Everyone's that, got the same they haven't issues. Got, they didn't go through Brexit, so why are they also struggling? You think, well, if you lay people off for long enough, they're going to go and do something else. Yeah. And when you want them back, they've gone. Paddy's uh, the over 50s have gone and done something else And they've gone life. to something during better hours. Yeah, yeah, like, abso- not, absolutely. So, yeah. so it, Brexit is part of it, and I think also there's a... There's a long-standing problem with the with the industry that it's got a perception problem to try and get young people into the industry, and that it's working really hard. But to try and make it an attractive proposition, whether it's around working hours or or pay or whatever it happens to be, you know, this has been going on for well 50 years. It's not a Brexit issue. All Brexit did was kind of fix a short-term problem because you're able to get a load of cheap foreign labour into I was about to fix say, the problem. In, in and then, and then they all buy- it's a career, isn't it? Yeah, to, yeah. You know, it's a, it's here, a, here it's like, we don't do service. Like, what do you want? Fuck it, off, it's a, it's you know? a, it's There's a definite cultural issue, which is which at some point needs to get addressed, yeah. How did lenders take the whole lockdown and COVID? Because yeah, presumably interesting. people couldn't repay <clears throat> their debts. Well, so hang on, just take a step back. Right, you, yeah. How does your business function? Like, not really. <laughs> <laughs> you I'm hoping you pay. <laughs> I say, hoping you pay well here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do our best, but you know, what you borrow from banks or no, no. I think, I think the thing is, our model is very much based on growth. So, in other words, for somebody to need money, they're needing to be doing something, like taking on a new site, and obviously. 
over an extended period, that kind of stopped. So much of the time we spent then was just helping people who already had problems, knowing that, you know, it, it's not, it was not a, um, a revenue opportunity for us. It was like, we're all in this together. Let's try and help and, you know, let's have some conversation with finance companies on your behalf and try and get things smoothed over. I think most finance companies, I think, did the right thing. I think there was obviously a lot of governmental pressure to do the right thing mm. as well. Uh, the British Business Bank was bearing down on people to make sure that people were treated fairly over COVID. Um, that went away quite quickly, uh, as I'm sure you, you, you'd expect. Um, but I think it's it's difficult now because um, the, lenders are not very good at being entirely open and honest about a situation. If they're being really, if they're feeling really conservative about where the market is at the moment, they don't express that. Because they still want to see all the business and they still want to see pick and choose what they want to do. Yeah. They don't want to send a signal that actually we're closed, mm. even though actually so they, may, they may be cl- Oh, try being a broker. Oh yeah, it, it's a very frustrating world because people never quite play it straight with you. We're open for business and you give them an absolutely wonderful opportunity and they'll find some spurious reason for not doing it. Say, yeah. well, you're clearly not open All for investors are a little bit like that. People never really want to admit that they don't want to do it sort of thing. But the banks are particularly bad. I mean, there was that hilarious period during, two, it was in the press when 2008, they were saying, well, you know, in 2009, we're lending, we're lending. And it was like, <laughs> no, you're not, you know. But, you know, part of that is the kind of British thing that you never want to actually say no. So you'll find an excuse, you know, for not doing something it's, it's, that isn't it's, actually it's, known. I think it's even worse than that. Um, I think in the and this has been the case as well. I've been worked in financial services a long time, but I think it's always been the case. I think I think banks not only are they bad at saying no, you know, they take six weeks to say no, and during that six weeks, the person who's hoping to get the money. Assumes because they haven't heard anything. Assumes it's all good. good. Yeah. Yes. Well, also, yeah. if you ask them within that six weeks, they'll be, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, it's just with you. Yeah, yeah. And, and a, lot, a lot of the kind of front-facing staff have absolutely no authority at all. So they're there to be nice and smiley and, and all that kind of touchy-feely stuff. Um, but the truth of the matter is it will go to a credit underwriter in a cupboard somewhere who doesn't know the business, doesn't know the people, and they'll make and they'll make a decision, and they'll take a long time over it. And again, you know, as a broker, we often get people come to us way too late, where they've had their time wasted, mm. and we're expected to work miracles. Then it's almost like, well, I've, you know, the site is due to be open, and we haven't got any money. And it's almost like, okay, well, um, you have so much the same thing with fundraising. It's like, yeah, I'm, I need to pay my staff next week, and I've now found this person <clears> that's <throat> going to put two hundred k into the company. And it's like, oh, I've heard it. A, it's a not going to come in by next week. I've heard it a thousand times. And the, th- the thing is, if you know, it, it's very frustrating. If you know you can actually help somebody. Yeah, but to not the, in to the time get, frame. Yeah, or, or you can help them, but you get knocked back on the basis that, yeah, I would deal with you, but this American investor is going to put all this money in and you look at them going, nah. Yeah, he is, happen. but it's going to take you six months. It's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Clark got its start back in 1935 And while the world has changed a bit It's more than just survived From complying with the FCA And all things financy They can also speak fluently In the language of legalese Ori Clark was born and raised Right here in the UK And now for 20 years They've been helping others Get set up and on their way Ori Clark's door's always open and happy to provide straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. 
big shout out to Sean Veer Singh for a stellar jingle. You can find him at Sean Veer Singh Music on Instagram. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review, please, on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. But let me understand this a little better. So you're you're a broker, particularly for restaurants who can come to you. So I would call this almost your corporate finance for restaurants, startups, kind of, a boutique uh, house. yeah. I mean, no, because we're not particularly find the money, are you? Yeah, I mean, we're, because we're very much in the world of SMEs, we're not really corporate anything, and we don't deal with corporates. We deal with people ah, and to run businesses. It's the, it's, so. the, it's the name. So, from a technical point of yeah, view, it's it's, it's, corporate finance. It's, it's, broad, it's broadly the same role, but it's it, yeah, it's broadly the same role, but it's at a way lower level. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Don't you dare call me corporate. <laughs> <laughs> don't you dare <laughs> from South London. <laughs> <laughs> so if somebody is, you know, is a startup and they're raising, someone money comes from to you fund, with a restaurant, like they a, want a number funding, of, number of restaurants or a single restaurant, or uh, I mean, most of the things we get involved with would be sub ten sites. Once you get beyond ten, you're probably mm. owned by somebody bigger, and you probably don't need our help. We deal with the new starts through to that sort of ten figure. Um, is it still ten? I mean, it's always been ten, but it feels a bit yeah, low now. We no we. Hmm. I say 10, probably if you actually analyse what we do, most of the traffic's probably either new starts or kind of three to five, yeah, yeah. Where, where businesses have been tr- trucking along quite nicely. They get to a stage, they've probably been at the same place for two years and saying, it's about time we started expanding this business because we once had a dream we were going to build this big brand and then sell it off and they kind of got marooned at some point and it didn't really happen and now they need to kind of get going again. I was told that a restaurant business is sort of old accounting rule. It's hard to make money off until you have three sites or Three sites. Yeah, I I, I use that. Because you can swap staff around and Central costs. Central costs are killer because you've got all of your central costs on site, number one, half of your central costs kind of on site two, a third of your central costs on site three and it starts to make a bit of sense yeah. yeah and this is a conversation that we obviously have with lenders who don't understand how restaurants work it's like they're not making a profit they were never meant to make a profit at this point yeah follow the trend see what they're doing and it's a bit like the the other issue we tend to have where they look backwards at the other sites and say yeah but they can't afford it yeah but you've taken none of the income from the site that they're about to open so, of course, they can't afford it. The other two sites aren't going to be generating so much money. You're going to have a free restaurant. It doesn't work that way. Because if they were, they wouldn't be coming to ask you for money. Yeah. It's sort of reverse of past performances. You know, the stock market's done this forever, apparently. And then just as we invest, all this shit happens. It's sort of the reverse. Is your people struggling to see the future who are investors, effectively. They just see a sort of track record. So your job's a sort of educational one. Yeah, it is certainly with the lenders. Uh, I mean, most of the investors, we're talking about the investor side, most Mm. of them are industry people. So they know as much, if not more, than we do on what makes a good deal. Um, Our job is to basically try and marry them up with the right opportunity. But certainly on the lender side, most lenders that we deal with, if not all, are generalists. So they'll see a restaurant, 
a print company, a car hire company. So you aren't lenders. They're big. They're big no, no, most no. The, the 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 main kind of high street lenders aren't interested at all. They will tell you they are, but they aren't. Not unless you get mm. to a certain level. Um, there are kind of challenger banks and second tier lenders that this this is the world we kind of let uh, sort of working, and where we can add value to our customers is that quite often they won't find these people. They they're not people who who would have a. Uh, you know, they don't advertise. Um, Isn't this the fact that there's, there's actually fund. hundreds of banks in this country there's, legally, yeah, but we only know, we could probably name 10. Yeah, well, mo- many of them have taken the, and I mean, this is a, there was a big clear out, again, going back 20 years. Most of them back in the day had their own sales forces and people out representing their banks. And then they realised they couldn't make it pay. So they decided to go down a route where they dealt with brokers. So in other words, we become their front end looking for opportunities mm. and they then receive opportunities from us. Uh, so, they, but because of that, we know who they are. But the general public don't know who they are. But that also enables us to add value because we can we can say, okay, I know who'll do that deal, and you'll never know who that lender is. And that's how I guess how we we make our money. Yeah, that's a really interesting juncture because exactly like you say, I, I think it, it's it's connecting the docs, isn't it? Finding people that are if you've got a good idea and you've got you know some starting capital and you know what you're doing, you've got this great chef and you found the location. It's like yeah, you sh- this should be worth doing, but how the hell? Who where'd you start? Nothing, 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 nothing ever happens without money. Yeah, nothing. Yeah, you know. And one of the main questions I get asked continually is, where do I get the money from? Yeah, as I say, I mean, we had a really good example earlier this week. There was a, a young guy who, who you know, he got a really good CV. He worked for the Fat Duck. He'd had some. He worked some really other good, good experience. And he, he felt it was as many of them do. He felt now it's my time to go and do something. Um, but the problem is nobody knows who he is. And particularly if you look at fine dining, um, they're actually quite, the better the food, the harder the deals are to do from an investment point of view. Because what, Tricky what characters, maybe. Well, well you're only, you've only got one about, site, Yeah, really. but it's about scale. And, you know, yeah. if, 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 we all opened, uh, if we all opened a sandwich bar uh, that was going to be the next Pret and buy this time next year it had five sites and the year after it had 10 and then we sold to some private equity company, then all the investors make money and everybody's happy. If it's fine dining, it tends to be focused on one single site, which could be great, it could get great reviews. It but could... it's still going to be a kind of lifestyle yeah. business. Yeah, yeah, it's very difficult to make money because all the cost levels in terms of, you know, staff, ingredients, and everything else are generally higher. And it's very difficult to replicate and, and grow and have more sites. So, from an investment point of view, they tend to be a bit of a labour of love, that people will back a project because they like it, not because it makes any financial sense at all. They just like the idea of the concept to the people. Uh, and my conversation with this guy was the fact that you've got to, you know, go back and look at your own address book of who you know because your yes. likely investor will yes. be somebody who already likes and trusts you. Um, or alternatively, you've got to get busy and go and do pop-ups or residences or supper clubs and Get, for ages, get a, get a name for yourself. Get get a bit of a following because without that, you're not going to get somebody come to you cold and say, "I don't know this guy. I, I've never eaten his food, but here's two hundred grand." I mean, it just doesn't happen that way. I mean, God, it must it must be full of uh, crazy characters. But as you say, you reach this point where you must sort of almost get frustrated. And I'm now wondering whether like the dark kitchens are really how all these people get born. They do that for two years and they're like, I'm going to fucking start my own restaurant. Well, with a beautiful the, kitchen. Oh, we, oh, Actually, have, oh, it's no, entirely no, no. the other way around. Like the clients I know that now have dark kitchens started as like a storefront restaurant yeah. and then went, 
this is really stupid. Like we can't. Get oh, they the, made it we there. Can't there is. The yeah. Sorry, you, yeah, I was going to say there is. There is. Yeah. A, there is another subplot to all of this yeah. when oh. you come to dark kitchens, ah. and it's called one of three things. It's either Deliveroo, Uber Eats, mm. or Just Eats, because a lot of the dark kitchen traffic is driven by the platforms. Platforms who take thirty five percent commission, and platforms who don't tell the kitchen who the customer is. Yeah. So you're busy chunking out food via Deliveroo to whoever you don't know. Yeah, the, pa- the power of the platform is they know who the customers are. Yeah, I, I've had this... And they take a huge whack on top. Yeah, I've, I've, I've had this conversation with so many restaurateurs where almost it's like a penny drop moment when you say, okay, they'll start saying about my customers to say, mate, they're not your customers, yeah. they're Deliveroo's customers. Yeah. Yeah. And if Deliveroo wanted to switch you off and build their own dark kitchen and start producing your food... See you later. Do you think delivery is a bad thing? I mean, is that sort of, isn't that, it's just, the, these are I business models I reckon delivery is slightly different or it started out slightly different from Uber Eats and the other ones, which yeah. were, Uber Eats and the other ones are kind of like, these are standard takeaway <sighs> restaurants where now you can just order your takeaway more efficiently via one app. Rather and, than going to I just, my friend worked at Just Eat. They had a little terminal thing back, sort of, you know, they installed something in your premises. Whereas Deliveroo, or the premise behind Deliveroo originally was, these are not restaurants who would normally do takeaway deliveries. But you can... We're filling up capacity. You can that was their original business model. A restaurant yeah. meal. Yeah, it's kind of moved, it has moved, moved on. It moved think. on. Um, I mean, because at the end but of the day... But there's another one. Have you come across Supper? There's a couple now. There's some guys that um, were put on to me as well who were very interesting because instead of, I wish I could remember their name, but instead of 35%, it was 12 and they only dealt with local independent restaurants. I think they started in Cambridge and they're now kind of growing out from there. But it's about time somebody did that and sort of made the whole thing a little bit more restaurant friendly because I think in their model... Oh, so no random takeaways? No, 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 yeah, yeah, it'll be generally be, I mean, good quality. They're they're trying to get the quality of the restaurants there as well. Right. But I mean, I think, you know, I I, I don't know if this is the right phrase or not, but I think delivery are a bit of a necessary evil. I think think restaurateurs need... for my life. They need them. They need them at quiet times. Uh, For me... Not being a fan, I found during lockdown rather that I was using them three or four times a month, even though I didn't like the idea of doing it. You just kind of do. Yeah. Um, and I think they're there for good. I think it's it's flattened out a little bit now because obviously they grew tremendously through lockdown because there's very little option. Um, but uh, And that's leveled out a little bit. But yeah, they're, they're certainly here for good. But there is, there's another one called Supper where the whole premise, I remember talking to the founder for quite a long time, the whole premise is they have these... You might have seen them, these bikes that have big, like, white, like, what looks like a fridge on the back, and it's a temperature control. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Like, little room, basically, so that they can get food from kind of really high-end restaurants, and it's sort of presented properly and everything else and put in this kind of stasis so that when they deliver it to your house... It's as good as it would be in the restaurant. They never that's can the do tempura. It's never going to happen. Yeah. They'd have to it's fry it on the bike. That's the whole thing. That they're, that's what they're I'm sure it's not a little, uh, little you pay a huge amount of money fry. to them because they're going to deliver you a restaurant experience just at your home. Yeah. So wait a second. Your business. You did you join your? You were in your business for years before COVID, were you? Uh, 2015, we started. 2015, okay. And then you are literally in probably like, you must have had more phone calls than you knew what to do with when this kicked off, was it? And what, did, COVID? Well, all the restaurants are in the shit. I guess they can furlough, but they all need cash, don't they, when that all happened? or? Um, yes and no. I, I it, it was probably the biggest thing we did was 
uh, act as a kind of um, a, a go-between between lenders and uh, and the restaurants themselves because, you know, they didn't know how to put the case. They didn't know how to speak to lenders. They're all a bit scared, understandably, about, you know, I've just borrowed 200 grand off a finance company like, like th- three weeks ago and now I've got to explain yeah. that I now haven't got any money and can't pay them. So, you know, we, we were very happy to play that role and get involved and, and try and help because, again, having worked on the other side, um, and let's say most most lenders were were pretty good, uh, and you know as they should have been. So you you, know. you you started you in uh, a previous career. You've actually lent to people, have you? Or well, no. I, I, I mean, Finance Kitchen as an idea came from two previous deals, um, uh, and, and two previous deals and a crossroads and a bit of boredom. I think if you put all those together, um, we let me think. Um, a long, long time ago, um, I got involved with a, a restaurant called the Cinnamon Club in Westminster. Yeah, I know it. The uh, nice Indian. Yeah, yeah, and it was first of its type, um, and it had almost run out. There was a Panorama documentary on this. If you go back and look on YouTube, it's probably still there. Um, and uh, it, it had run out of money before it got opened. Um, no way. And, and it had it all, of, all, all of all of the kitchen equipment was still in boxes downstairs. And I got an approach from the uh, the, uh, the guy who was their accountant, who I still know. And he said, uh, do you do refinancing? And I go, well, I can do. Yeah. I said, okay, do you do refinancing your kitchen equipment? I said, that's going to be tough. You do refinancing your kitchen equipment, a restaurant that hasn't yet opened, that's about to go bust. It's like, okay. Um, somehow um, we got it done. We found a private lender who just fell in love with the idea and wrote a cheque for a couple of hundred grand and the cinnamon club would not have opened had that not happened. Really? And, yeah. and you just got out, that's just hard work, yeah, is it? Yeah, and, I, and it, it sort of, you know, it's like... You get a tremendous buzz when you, you you look back on something and say, that should never really have got done, and we got that done. And it gives you a real kind of spring in your step. The other one I had an experience of was um, uh, <laughs> uh, was the was the Ivy. And that was quite a funny story because I was working for a company at the time um, where my boss's boss's boss were, was personal friends with Jeremy King at the Ivy. So I got a phone call from my boss's boss's boss saying, can you go and see my friend Jeremy? They're looking to refit this new restaurant they've taken on called The Ivy. It's got this great history. It goes back to the 30s and this kind of thing. And um, and I went went to see him. He's a really charming man. Um, and, and I went back to my, my underwriter and I thought this is going to be easy because he's a mate of my boss's boss's boss. So it's like, just sign there, deal done. And I took it back and uh, the underwriter said, uh, right, and I want their personal guarantees. I'm like... That's not going to go down particularly well, but we'll give it a go. So I went back to um, Jeremy King and said, um, oh, deal's all agreed, but we're going to need your personal guarantee. And he probably gave me the biggest bollocking I've had off of any customer any time. Yeah. <laughs> I think he was venting and he probably had every right to vent. Uh, and I'd have joined him in it as well because I'd probably been stitched up. So I went back to my, my underwriter and said, <laughs> I've just had my ears torn off. Are you sure about this guarantee thing? He said, oh, yeah. He said, do you know who this guy knows? You know, he's your boss's 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 boss as well. You know who he knows? He goes, yeah, yeah. It's like, great. So I did something which is extremely um, unethical and a bit South London. I took it to a mate who works for another finance company and they did it. (laughs) (laughs) And shortly after that, I left my job. I did, yeah. Uh, But I think it, you know, but but with both of those, I just love the vibe. And I got to a point in 2015, I'd had... 10 years of rescuing businesses, as as previously mentioned, which is not a load of fun. I just thought I've got to be doing something else with my time. 
And my partner and Angela kind of sat down over a drink and it was like, oh, well, what to do, what to do next? And I, re- I retold those two stories and I went back and saw a guy called Iqbal Wahib, who you probably Great know. Great name. Yeah. Iqbal. Yeah, he was, a, he was a driving force behind uh, Cinnamon Club. He was originally a journalist and he got this whole, whole thing up and running. And at that time, he'd moved on and, and was working at, with another restaurant, which I'd also got involved with, called Roast at Borough Market. Yeah, I know. So I, I, went to, I went to see Iqbal and said, right, mate, how's this work? How do these restaurants, how do they get money? Where do they get money? Who's out there? Who does what? And by the end of the lunch, I'd got four leads of people I needed to go and speak to, kind of way thinking, got business here. Um, because we found out that, you know, the, the newer restaurants had nobody to look out for them or nobody specifically to look out for them. You know, when they were looking for investment, when they were looking for, to, to borrow money. And the banks, the banks had gone cold on them where they used to just go down their bank manager and they were some established restaurant and the bank would write a check, you know. Yeah, but those, those days are, are long Numbered. gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, long gone. And I think, you know, so... so it was, where were these... You obviously... A chap I know who's really good at raising money, I asked him what he did once and he showed me, we were on Zoom, and he said, I'll show you. And just open this Excel and he said... I've kept this up to date, Andrew, for 20, 30 years, basically. And it was all his, all his contacts, mates, and little, just a few comments on some of them, their number, their email. And he says, I just go through it and I write to them and then shit happens because some of them are serious people. We, we knew nobody in 2015, nobody at all on the investment side. And it's, we built up a network of about 500 now and it's just scrolling through the trade press. Pick a name, find a name, I've got 21,000 contacts on LinkedIn now. But a lot of that's been built up by literally just tracking people down relentlessly to try and get an email address, to try and get a, an intro. And this intro. will be someone that you could see is run some private yeah. bank or something. Well, more, more than that, it's, it's people that have been big hitters in the hospitality industry because there's a, yeah, it's, the industry is very good like that. There's a lot of people who've done very well. Um, and they like the idea of helping the next generation along. It's very good like that, the industry. So we've tried to pal up to these people. And and obviously, we then get uh, uh, restaurants at the other end of the journey where they're looking for money for the first time, and then we introduce them, and hopefully something sticks. So that was this week's episode of BWB Extra, and we'll be back with a new episode next week. Until then, it's goodbye. <laughs>